yeah, you may have gone through difficult things or done some some bad things, but you know, you, we should never sell ourselves off as as being irreparable, as as being, you know, no longer beings that God wants to save. That that we are uh, as as savable in this mortal state um, as as we ever could have been before something happened. And that's what the atonement's really about. So how does that relate to third principle is that uh, part of what what we have the capability of doing in this life, in, in my interpretation, is receiving from light certain truths that we could not access or experience as just spirits. I'm looking at how I'm going to do the 600th episode celebration, and I think it's going to be a retrospective, a uh, a lot of work, and I hope that y'all appreciate it as we look back over the last 600 episodes. If there are moments, episodes, guests, uh, different answers to different questions that really struck you, changed your faith, helped you see something different, helped you become more loving, more accepting, whatever the thing may be, maybe it made you mad. Are there moments that made you mad? Whatever it is, uh, you can send us contact at theculturalhall.com. Putting together that 600th episode celebration as we speak right now, and I would love to be able to hear from you. Contact at theculturalhall.com. There are messaging platforms on all the social medias where you can find us at The Cultural Hall. You can find us over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. Find us on Facebook in The Cultural Hall back row, a free group that you can be a part of uh, where people are hanging out and talking about each of the episodes. Uh, whatever it is, uh, I really have eliminated every excuse for you to not do something about this 600th episode celebration. So ask yourself maybe, why am I not doing something? And then maybe you can tell me why you're not. Does that sound good? All right. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Here's this episode. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm honored, honored to be joined uh, by Aaron Franklin. You're thinking, I'm not Richie, Aaron Franklin, name rings a bell, maybe? Well, let me uh, share with you the provided bio and what I know about Aaron D. Franklin. He is a professor of electrical and computer engineering and chemistry at Duke University. Yes, that Duke University. He's a native of Phoenix, Arizona, earned a bachelor's degree from Arizona State University and a doctorate from Purdue, both in electrical engineering. Uh, prior to becoming a professor, he worked at IBM as a research assistant studying, and my favorite thing to say this morning, nanotechnology. Welcome, Aaron Franklin. Is all of what I read about you true? It is. And in fact, I would have to say it has it, it's likely the most energetic introduction I've ever received. So you took really boring content and I feel like it deserves like background music. For well, uh, I'll put that in in post, man. We'll have a riveting. Aaron, uh, I think that people probably because you are not the the normal type guest that I would have here in the cultural hall. There may be some people that are like, is it, what is this going to be science chat for the next hour? Uh I want to reaffirm to people that, yes, it is going to be science chat, but it is going to be informative. It is going to be spiritual, uplifting, and also uh, uh, exciting as we get to know you and what your life's work is. So I appreciate you not knowing what you've got yourself into being here. 
Hey, I just from the episodes I've heard of your podcast, which is really fantastic. I'm really the one to be honored to be here and only hope we can live up to some of those uh, qualities that you have predicted for this episode. <laughs> I want to know a little bit about yourself. I sort of gleaned over stuff, right? Arizona, are you a, a, a born and raised a member of the church down in Arizona? Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised in Arizona. I joined the church as a young teenager uh, in oh. Phoenix where I grew up. Yeah. Now, um, is, that, is that because, uh, I mean, like the friends around, because in Arizona, a lot of members of the church, you're like, hey, the, all these folks get together on Wednesday night, and I'd like to, I'd like to be a part of that. Is that where it kind of was introduced? Yeah, great question. So I was actually a little less traditional for converts coming from the Phoenix metro area. In fact, I served my mission in Atlanta, Georgia, and when I would meet members and tell them I was from Phoenix, they would almost always correct me and say, you mean Mesa? Uh-huh. And, and, you know, that was now that was several decades ago, at least a couple decades ago. And so uh, nowadays, maybe people would say, you mean Gilbert or, mm-hmm. or one of the other many expansive areas outside the Phoenix metro or part of the Phoenix metro area. Uh, but no, I, I grew up in Phoenix. I didn't have a lot. The, the church membership density was not that high in the part of Phoenix that I grew up in. Um, so I didn't have any friends that were members of the church. I uh, actually just uh, I didn't come from a very religious family and I had. It's this inner drive to uh, to go to church with friends from school. And I was going to a Catholic church, uh, a Baptist church a couple of times. And in spite of the stark contrast between the services of those two particular denominations, uh-huh. it didn't strike me that there was that much of a difference. So I would pressure my mom, hey, let's let's go to church. There's a church right down the street. We should go to that church. And um, long story short, uh, through a connection um, on my stepfather's side, uh, his his mother was a member, is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And my mom was sort of complaining to her a little bit about <laughs> the pressure I was giving of going to church. She, my mom had not grown up with, with any religion in her life. And um, and so it sparked something in, uh, it, her name's Grandma Honey. We called her Grandma Honey. So it really fits well for the sweet person she is. And um, she took us to the temple, to Mesa Temple, which was actually a hike back then. I mean, if you've been to Arizona before, now it's just all blends together. But back then, it, it was actually a distinct destination to leave Phoenix and go to Mesa. And uh, I filled out a little card to have the missionaries come to our house. And uh, they came and, and taught us. And I was baptized with my stepbrother and my brother. Um, so anyway, you're getting gory details there, but that's that's the the origin story, if you will. And I certainly met uh, some really great and lifelong friends in the church as I attended seminary and was active through high school, um, but uh, not the most traditional in terms of uh, overall conversion story, I think, for the area. As you look back on it, though, I mean, pretty unique because teenagers are usually the rebellious ones or the teenagers that are like, well, all my friends are doing it, so I'll do whatever my friends do. But this was sort of an uh, an interior, an inside personal yearning to do it. As you've had the time to look back on it, what what do you think that really was? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I'm okay just simply being isolated as the oddball, so <laughs> not really part of the norm there, for better or worse. Uh, but you know, honestly, Richie, I, I I've thought about I thought a lot about it on my mission because by the time you know, if you you for me joining the church just before high school and, and being a member of the church throughout high school, by the time I went on my mission, it, it, 
I, I didn't consider myself a convert. I mean, it's not right. some, I didn't really process it at that level. I, I, I felt like I was equal plane of, of anyone else who had been born in a family uh, of active members of the church. So uh, it wasn't until I was on my mission teaching discussions and, and really coming to the awareness when, when folks would pressure a little bit, this question of, well, You've always been a member of the church, or your whole family's a member of the church. And then I started realizing, well, man, that's not that's not actually true. And and honestly, and I don't know if everyone has some things like this from their youth, but it caused me to look back and and feel like I hardly know the person that I was as a kid that had those feelings. Like I can't I can't really remember processing the pressures to do one thing versus another. All I know is that I wanted to be in church. And, and I can't even explain why that was the case. It just, it, it was a draw. Like we didn't pray in my family. We didn't talk about God or religion. I didn't have friends that were super religious, even those that I went and visited some of those other Christian denominations with. Mm-hmm. It's not like they were like brimming with religiosity of, uh, you know, absolutely, you need to be saved and converted and come with me. It just there clearly was a drive that I, I just am grateful for that that seed being planted because I cannot explain its origin in terms of my circumstances or personality. And then you get this call to go to Atlanta, Georgia. And if there is one thing that I know about Atlanta, Georgia, it is nothing like the Phoenix Mesa metro area. What was that experience like as you go, hey, you know what? I'm just this Western boy landing in the South of Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, great question. I, I loved it. I, I mean, it, it for, for the first memory I have of getting to Atlanta, since I'd hardly left Arizona in my life, <laughs> was that it felt like I was breathing underwater with the humidity going from super dry to super humid, right? Um, but, but honestly, it, the, the environment that it presented me with in terms of understanding where we fit from a doctrinal and a worship perspective uh, across the landscape of really faithful and and frankly incredible Christians that are out there and and folks from really any other religion i i was not accustomed to interacting with people with such fervor for mm-hmm. religion and and that was transformative to me i mean one of the uh, of the standout uh, experiences of my mission was uh, making friends with a minister from the Church of Christ. And it was not the traditional Bible Belt missionary story where it's like, oh, yeah, we got into it with this person and they were battling. The, and then he the- invited us into his church to be able to to preach. And then, yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, no, no such uh, end uh, or, or origin for that particular story. But but uh, he was he was an older gentleman that um, he he started with a little of an, an intent to intimidate and, and I think to kind of show us the right way uh, of, of, you know, the gospel and, and interpreting the Bible. But it evolved into a weekly study session where there were genuine questions asked on both sides. And I, I can honestly say I learned some some really incredible truths from this minister um, about the Bible that I have not learned in any other medium that I have been a part of. And um, and and I, I like to think he learned some from me. I mean, he was a minister of a congregation of 2000 and he, he came to general conference on a Saturday because, he you know, he couldn't make it to church Sundays and he faithfully read reading assignments. And and, uh, you know, it doesn't end. Not all truth sharing experiences end in conversion by way of baptism or a, a membership or record change. 
truth sharing experiences that, that bring light, that bring increased understanding, can be those that that end with smiles and awareness that's different than than before the interaction occurred. And and for my interactions there, I mean, I will forever be grateful for the things that I learned uh, from that minister. So anyway, that's a little specific and deep to what your broad question no, was. No, no, the, I, I appreciate that comment so much because I think that within the church, we sort of mythologize mythologize? I don't know. We, we take stories like that and we go, oh, you know what? It, it needs to end with the baptism or whatever, but that your life is literally changed. So in a way converted, right? Because of the instance that you had with this person and it didn't end in, in, with him being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's still great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we all kind of hang on that pinnacle moment of like, and then did they enter the waters of baptism? And it's like, no, but we learned together and we had compassion for one another. And I was able to learn about this part of the gospel or this part of the spirit from another individual. And guess what? Didn't come, you know, into the waters of baptism. I appreciate that you would share it yeah. that way. Well, and you know, one more comment on that. I think oftentimes uh, as members of the church, we we don't do a a great job believing the the truly um, unique and wonderful doctrine that we sort of help hold uh, un, uh, on our own, which is the doctrine of eternal progression and gospel preaching and conversion that that goes through this probationary state, and that that includes the unpredictable uh, aspects of what comes between now and the, the final judgment, resurrection, and, and on all of those matters, that there's gospel being preached in the spirit world. That there's, and, and I'm not saying that that means we should back off the gas pedal and, and, and say, you know, hey, we do bare minimum and, and people will get a chance at some point. They'll figure because, it out someday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, but because we do have awareness of, of, of how that, that overall arc works in terms of there being opportunity uh, for, for receiving gospel truth and for, for lowering barriers that have been placed by mortal circumstance, right? Because we can't judge those. We can't judge what barriers someone has had in place because of their own mortal distinct journey that they've been on. And, um, and, and, and we know that, and any, any member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can likely describe that when they're pressed with, like, what about people who never hear about Jesus? And, you know, that's billions of people on the earth at, at present. And, and when we're like, we're all armed and ready. Here's the response. And yet, when it comes to our, our individual experiences and interacting, whether it's family members or friends or experiences like I had on my mission in Georgia with this minister— Sometimes we don't even bother wielding that sword. Like here we understand that truth. We have it. And yet, and yet we leave those situations and think, well, they chose not to be converted. Yeah. So they rejected the greater light. And, and I think that we're just not, we're not relying enough on uh, embracing the, the full reality of that truth, which is, it's not that this life, this mortality is purely that everyone here has to come here and has to be baptized and make every covenant on the covenant path or they are done for. We of all people know that is not a true statement. We know that that is a goal that we want to be on and help others find a covenant path because of the 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 blessings and perspective and and you know how important those covenants are in eternity, but but we shouldn't be dictating the necessity of the now to others. Uh, we should just be inviting and giving them the chance to take it. Can I say at the end of that preach? Can I say amen to the end of that? that I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, 
interesting you said that we we can't judge that but that we still do but we really shouldn't judge that because i know plenty of people who absolutely judge it and it's like eh, you're off but uh you you get home from the mission and then this is where people are like so what is this scientist doing here you st- you decide to do chemistry and computer engineering i don't even know what really i guess if pressed what computer engineering is so tell me a little bit about like you get home and you're like, okay, here's the here's the career path. This is where we're going. <laughs> yeah, um, I appreciate you being willing to walk through the full life journey here, Richie. You're, you're <laughs> so uh, the, I honestly, as a as a kid, uh, again, one of these you know seeds that were planted. I I became fascinated with electrical engineering, mm-hmm. and there were a couple of of Motorola scientists that came and visited my classroom in school, and. It just, it sounded like something super impressive and it sounded cool. And it was like one of those things where it was like, that's what I'm going to do. And even though as, as time marched on and I took a lot of math and other classes, uh, you'd think some folks get that initial spark and then they think, oh, never mind. I, I don't like this. Stuff. <laughs> Thankfully, it just happened to be something that I, I enjoyed. So uh, before I started my mission, I uh, was a colossal failure as an academic. I, I went to school and uh, achieved a world record, or at least in my life, I think a record of a 0.96 GPA. That, yes, thank you. Very thank good. you. I, yes. I figured yes. out. Uh, and not only did I fail so spectacularly, Richie, I, I genuinely thought I was being wrong. Like I felt like I'm doing everything <laughs> I can here. And, and I can't believe this happened. And, you know, I had had a scholarship and everything and, and lost all of it. And when I went on my mission, now I'm never going back to school. And, and it's amazing to say that, you know, sitting in my office at, at Duke, which there may be some Duke haters in your listening audience, but sure. it is a renowned academic institution. And so it is odd interacting with students that are far higher caliber at the level of their education than I was at that time. But I went on a mission thinking, I'm never going back to college. No one needs to tell me what I know. I, I did construction growing up. I was happy and would have been uh, happy, I think, doing that when I got home. But um, I still liked this idea of electrical engineering. And so by the time I got out for my mission, had some you know course adjustments mentally uh, in terms of what my interests were and did decide to go back to school and to community college. I uh, guess the only place that could ac- would accept me at that point um, and, and transferred to uh, an undergrad institution. I went to Arizona State. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell this story not in a way of saying, oh, look, look how amazing the outcome is. I tell it with both pieces because I have genuinely experienced what it's like to feel like you're trying with everything you have and failing spectacularly. Mm-hmm. And I've genuinely experienced trying with everything I have and succeeding spectacularly because I graduated from ASU with an electrical and computer engineering degree with a 4.0 GPA. Wow. So, I have these sort of two nodes in my in my academic experience at that particular point that um, that both were genuine experiences and 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 it was still me both times. It, it was just a matter of um, of you know approach and and work ethic and and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, but but it did you know by the time I got done with undergrad, I was convinced I did like this field and I like electrical and computer engineering. Computer engineering is more the software uh, based, okay. developing applications and programs and how to make them run more efficiently. Electrical engineering. A bit more hardware, um, you know, actually building the devices, working with the materials that make, for instance, computer chips. You know, what's in the heart of those things? How do they keep getting better? And uh, that's my my field of most interest. And so I went on to get a PhD uh, from Purdue in studying the materials and devices that we make those uh, computational systems and chips out of. 
And uh, that's that's sort of the arc of of my career. And chemistry sprinkles in there. A weird thing with you know the word you mentioned early on, nanotechnology, this sort of sci-fi sounding term, but mm-hmm. it's sort of a catch-all. Anything that has to do with uh, what's happening at a very small scale. And uh, so you get a lot of disciplines that just end up sort of sticking together in their uh, chemistry, physics, uh, material science, engineering, and and that's kind of where I live. And so by discipline, I'm I'm an electrical engineer, but I do all of these other things. Was there a moment you because you mentioned uh, that the mission sort of changes your being, right? Your your purpose, your intent, your your trajectory as far as that goes. Was it studying the scriptures and and being able to take the principles from studying the scriptures and go, this works with all disciplines, not just religion? Or like was there a, a particular like lesson or was it just the nature of, you know, having to do that thing over a course of two years that changed the trajectory? Yeah, uh, I I think I would sum it up as being um being a part of all of those things, actually, that the learning how to learn is a big part of it uh, through study, through, you know, through dedication, that oftentimes our, our understanding, our definition of, of how, what, what working hard looks like. Uh, And that changes. Like I look at my kids, we've got three teenagers, love them to death. And there are varying levels of understanding what working hard is and what their capabilities are, right? So, and, and that's been interesting to watch because I, I, I try to, it's hard sometimes, but I try to believe them when they tell me I've worked so hard at this because to them, they, they undoubtedly feel that, like they are experiencing that, but they haven't yet gone through enough to, to, modify or amplify what they understand about their capabilities. And, um, and I think that's what, what experience gives us, right. Is, is it gives us more depth to, to understanding what we are capable of. And my mission taught me that. And, uh, and I would be remiss to not recognize that my mission president, not unlike the story you'd hear from most of uh, those, those who serve full-time missions was a tremendous influence. I mean, he, his wife, their whole family uh, on my life and continue to be. So he was 41, which is scary because wow. younger than me now. And he was 41 when he uh, went and served as mission president. His family was very young and um, he just uh, became a lodestar for me. And it was the, the one who kind of helped me find my my vision for, for the future of what I was hoping to accomplish and, and how to get there. And so just a tremendous person, he, his family, they're just amazing. You know, uh, I have to, uh, I have to give you encouragement with those three uh, teenage kids and tell you, uh, if you have not yet, one thing that will help uh, as you parent those three teenage kids and, you know, you're kind of wondering as far as their level of hard work, say things like, you don't even know hard work. Kids love that. As as many times as you can say, you don't know what hard work is. Things of that nature that really helps motivate teenagers. So as much yeah, as let me take can, some notes. Let yeah, me take yeah. some notes here. <laughs> grab a pen. Grab a paper. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back in the second block of the cultural hall, I want to dive head into the spiritual physics of light. Yeah, okay. It needs some explanation, and we'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. <laughs> 
I uh, want to give a shout out right now, uh, Megan, that is uh, listener Megan. I'm not sure if she's a lifer or a convert here of the Cultural Hall, uh, but she heard me talk about how I do uh, podcast consulting and said, you know what, there's a thing, a, a thing that's been burning inside of me, and I want to be able to share and do this podcast. So she reached out to me and said, hey, what about this? And we're right smack in the middle of that class as I record this. And uh, it's fun to hear her start to do interviews and be able to receive that coaching and me be able to walk alongside her and say, yes, this is great. I love what you're doing here. Oh, you may want to think about doing this a little bit differently and uh, just being able to, to help and nurture and be able to share the things that she feels like she's, you know, truly God called to share. So if you've got something burning inside you, you're thinking, you know what, I've, I've thought about doing a podcast, but is it that easy? Uh, you can reach out to me. I'm Richie T. Stedman on all the social medias, or you can just drop into the DMs for the cultural hall. I answer those too. Uh, would love to hear from you and work with you uh, as you work on your newest, latest, and greatest project. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast and it's beautiful. So let's make sure your computer's ready to run it. Bring your PC into any PC Laptops right now at PCLaptops.com. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always suggest great episode ideas uh, for the Cultural Hall. You can send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, and you can find us on any and all social medias. It's at the Cultural Hall in all the places. You can DM us and you can uh, send the private messages. You can just message us depending on what platform it is. They all have so many different names. Why do they do that? I don't understand. The point is you can send us a message and say, you know who I really liked as a guest? Aaron Franklin. Or you can say, you know who I would really like as a guest, and you can suggest someone else. The one thing that I will say is if you are suggesting a different guest, if you have contact information for that guest, send that along as well. That makes it a little easier so we don't have to Google stock someone and then say, hey, someone that you maybe don't know suggested that you should be an episode. Let us know that as well. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Aaron, uh, you have written a book, penned a book called The Spiritual physics of light. Hold on, everybody. I promise that if you're feeling like a little bit of gloss come over your eyes, that there is value in the conversation that we're going to have. And I, I'll be honest, I'm a doubter, Aaron. I looked at it and I was like, is this going to, am I going to hate this? And I did not hate this. I, in fact, loved the, your perspective and, and approach about the spiritual physics of light. So, I'm excited to get into this. What what made you go, okay, I'm going to take this discipline from, you know, my professional career and mix it with my religious career and then have this book be born out of it? Yeah, so I appreciate that that backdrop uh, there, Richie. And it's fun, actually, every time I hear someone make this reference to spiritual physics of light, because when you put a book together of any nature, of any type, and it goes through the full like editorial phase and everything else, most of the time you have pretty dramatic changes and and often to a title, especially if it's a title that is of great interest to the author. Mm -hmm. and, and my wife was not a huge fan of the title at first and it kind of grew on her, but was convinced that they would change it. And it's one of the things that did not get changed from mm -hmm. the very origin of uh, version one of the many, many versions the book went through in development. 
um, is this title. So it's fun to hear folks kind of throw this around as they become aware of the book, um, as if it's a thing beyond what happened in my mind when I became interested in the topic, right? Um, so to answer your question, I, I, this was uh, a, a, a more of a hobby, a gospel hobby, if you will, a, a topic that I just really enjoyed thinking about and reading. Um, it, it, when I was on my mission, kind of going back to our conversation before, I, I, my mission president was was a really uh, avid uh, fan of learning about light. He would talk about that. And he's a lawyer, uh, so didn't have like a scientific background to it, but he would bring up concepts that sort of tied in there. And, and, and I'd say that probably is the seed uh, being planted in me that someone I respected greatly and learned so much from clearly had a passion for this topic. So as I got back from my mission and started taking classes in college and physics classes to learn about electromagnetism and uh, the spectrum of light and uh, and then took some engineering classes and learned about how photovoltaic cells or solar cells worked and they were taking light and they're converting into electrical energy. And, you know, all of this is sort of built onto this, this built in this inner passion for the topic of spiritual light. And uh, over the years, I just kept studying more and more uh, what what connections there could be there. I mean, I, I think it's it's worth reiterating that uh, one of the one of the gifts that we have in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is a very open recognition of the wholeness of truth. That that you don't have some form of of truth in the world, scientific truth, and then you have gospel or scriptural spiritual truth. Truth is truth. Mm -hmm. it, it, it all comes together in one great whole. And that means that when we learn things that are not necessarily being taught to us as we warm a hard bench in a chapel or a uh, slippery chair in a Sunday school class, that it is actually still truth, if we're even if we're learning it from other places. And and that that sort of hung, I hung on to that as I learned more and more about the physical nature of light. So uh, the book came to be because year, years after all of that was happening, I was into my career more. I, I just in conversations with my wife um, talking about, gosh, isn't this fascinating? And of course, she would humor me and she's so uh -huh. patient to say, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah sure, honey. What's going on yes, about that? Yes, you know, that is yeah. fascinating. Do you want to talk about neurons and or I don't know whatever the thing may be? And she's just like, yeah, you bet, uh huh, uh huh. Exactly. Uh -huh. She was very accommodating and patient. And so, uh, but at one point, I kind of was like, gosh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a super avid church book reader, but I, I've read a, a fair share of of church books at, at that point. Uh, and and I kind of commented like, gosh, wouldn't there should be a book about this? You know, someone should write a book. And it, and and I can honestly tell you. It was not on my mind like, oh, I should write a book about this. And it certainly wasn't necessarily on hers that, oh, you should go write a book about this. We had a young family and I was already doing an only mediocre job of time balance uh, with respect to job and everything else. And um, but as we talk more about it, she eventually did say to me, you know, you really you've studied this. You've talked about it for years. You really should think about writing it yourself. And and so that encouragement from someone who'd endured so much <laughs> of hearing me talk on the on the subject uh, was enough to to get me to put pen to paper, as you'd said, and and that was kind of where things started, and it went pretty quickly from there because I'd studied it for so long. I mean, wrote the book over the course of about six months to a year, wow. and um, lots of and then and then the years of of working to get it published, which is a whole experience in and of itself. Um, with a lot of really valuable feedback from overly generous friends going through early versions and, uh, and, and all those aspects that are typically part of developing a book. 
In, in my mind's ear, I sort of think that, uh, and I'm sure she wasn't like this, but I just think it's kind of a funny way to walk this out where you're like, someone should write a book about it. And your wife being that loving, supporting person says something like, yeah, why don't you write the book or shut up about it? Right. And I'm sure she, I'm sure she is much kinder than that. Uh, <laughs> But I, but I like that idea of how the spouse is like, yeah, 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 you should do it. Let come on, do this. I think the, this. the inner hope was likely maybe if he writes the book, he'll stop talking about it, and that totally backfired because now you know, all I'm talking about it all the time, including with with good people like you. So total backfire. But she has not mentioned that at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to walk out maybe one of the concepts uh, from the book. Let teach us a little bit. If, you know, you have thousands of ears listening to you right now and going, yeah, light. What's the big deal, Aaron? Help me. Um, yeah, I, I, I and there's so many big deals. It's hard to, to whittle it down. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a lecturer by trade. So I run out of time in an hour and 15 minute lecture on a topic way more boring than this. So it, it is difficult to sum up, but I, I'll kind of highlight maybe three or four quick principles that Great. I think I love it having awareness of. Um, first thing about light that is a very important principle to be aware of is that it cannot be stored. So unlike uh, what we think about with, with you know, we often hear the, the metaphors used with light in church in a way that like, you know, you're building up your light, you know, you're receiving all of this light. And, and I think some folks think of it as like, I've got some jar inside of me and it's just filling up with light and look, it's getting brighter and brighter in that light. And, and just, just from a, a pure physical context, that is not possible. Light is always moving. One of its core attributes is that it has a speed that is nominally constant and, and never stops. So the, the, the idea of actually capturing and storing it is, is actually a fallacy. So what we can do is generate light. And generating light, you know, think of a flashlight, uh, a lamp, there's some source of energy, usually electrical energy, but not always. Sometimes it's heat. You know, that's how we generate light with a fire, for instance, but uh, some type of energy and it's being converted to light. And so light is is one form of energy that can be the outcome of of conversion of another form of energy. So so in order to be radiating light, we have to be generating or reflecting that light. It's 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 coming from somewhere and it's not from some storage uh, medium within us. And then so, so don't move on because I got questions I want to ask yeah, about yeah. this. So, so then is the gospel principle that we uh, need to be looking for the ways in which we reflect light and generate light for others around us? Or is it that we constantly need to be studying and doing those things that would help us to have light because it can't be stored up? We can't kind of rest on those things. What's the gospel principle from from that, that uh, light principle that you've just shared? Yeah, yes and yes, for sure. I mean, think of the parable of the 10 virgins. Great example that uh, we we don't, I don't think we focus often on the aspect of light generation from that story, but it is a key element to their experience that, and, and there's multiple facets to it. I mean, one is that what is it that they actually needed? Is it they actually needed oil? Uh, no, they ultimately needed light. They needed mm. to be able to generate light. And it was the oil that served as the fuel source for that light generation. So it wasn't light they were storing. It was the capacity to generate that light from the mm. source. And then you can dive in deeper into what, what the oil actually represents and how you get oil to your lamp. Um, the other side of that story that I think brings this out is, is it, it, kind of to your question, is it light that we're looking to reflect or receive from others or give to others? 
I mean, that's that's another piece to the the five wise versus the five foolish virgins that, you know, if they were generating life in their lamps, then couldn't they just kind of shine the way for those that were also with them? And and yet that wasn't an aspect of it. And I I, I think it's a little harder to grasp from the the kind of an ancient little uh, lamps that they would carry around. But if you think about it as a flashlight, I think the analogy works well. If you think the difference between someone shining a light at you in your face, you know, it's there but it gives you very little comprehension of, of whatever else is happening around you. Whereas if you receive that, that light yourself and you're holding it, you're generating or holding the source, you can use it to comprehend things about your surroundings. And so when we, when we see the promises in the scriptures that, that when we have our eyes single to God, our whole bodies will be full of light and a body that is filled with light comprehends all things. So when we take on the source of the light by embracing and living truth, we generate it for ourselves and can comprehend and navigate the world around us in enhanced ways in the same fashion that the five wise virgins were able to navigate their path to the master, right? To the savior, the bridegroom in the in the parable versus the five foolish virgins without having that source coming from them uh, were unable to do so. Okay, I'll let you move on to another light principle. Okay, I just okay. wanted, to, I just wanted to, to know. A Let me off easy. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, this is not just a, a coasting interview, Aaron. We're, getting, <laughs> All right. we're nailing you down to the principles here. Good. I love it, though. I really appreciate that, and and I think that that's uh, beneficial because people go, yeah, okay, light can't be stored. Great. Move what what why oh oh this is why and being able to apply it. So I'll probably just as a heads up to you ask similar questions about these other principles that you're about to walk out. Good. I would expect nothing less. So second one I would point out is that um, in terms of, of generating the light, we as a, a core physical principle, we are all radiating light. We are all generating light just as a part of being. And that is from speaking purely from a scientific context. And then we could tie that to a spiritual context, but but we are all radiating what's often known as black body radiation. It's in the infrared. It's why you see the super cool night vision goggles and you can see heat, you know, heat signatures for there being, uh, you know, warm bodies in, a, in an area. And that's all light being generated. It's not light being reflected. It's not visible light is light that is coming from an individual. And, and that is one of the principles that really got me thinking about the correlation to spiritual light radiation, that if a body, physical body, because even inanimate objects, by virtue of just being, have some light being radiated from them. And if that's what happens with physical bodies, what happens with spiritual bodies? Because all matter, all spirit is matter, right? Only more fine or pure. And so spirits, in my estimation, are also generating or radiating their own light, a spiritual light. And admittedly, that's a postulation, right? I'm, I'm, it's a guess based on what we observe in the physical world versus what I would assume in the spiritual world. But I think it ties in pretty well to the idea that we are radiating who we are, that it goes beyond, you know, it's an influence. It's an influence that comes from us and is able to impact the world around us. There, there also seems to be something that, that uh, is kind of 
cycling or looping with me as you're talking about it um, that makes me feel like it means like value, right? In a world where we question our own value, that that all, no matter what, have that sort of light that that would be coming from us, right? Even, oh, no, I'm so terrible, whatever the thing is I've done, but you are still able to radiate that light. I think I think to me, I don't know, maybe that's not what you meant at all, but that's something no, I, that kept I, I coming like back that. to me that I was like, yeah, no matter what, we, we still have that light, even, and to your point, when we can't see it with our eye, it still exists. Yeah, I, I love that extrapolation from that. It's absolutely consistent with, with what I was saying. And, and some of the best truths related to spiritual light that I have learned have come after this book was published and people <laughs> have come back and taught me really incredible things that uh, I just, I mean, that has been the most fulfilling part of this whole experience is, is learning things like that. So I think that's a really great insight actually. Um, so third principle I'd point out, and, and this I think relates to the, the fact that we are ra- you know, radiating light, that there's an importance to us that it's that, that to your point that, yeah, you may have gone through difficult things or done some, some bad things, but you know, you, we should never sell ourselves off as, as being irreparable as, as being, you know, no longer beings that God wants to save that, that we are, uh, as, as savable in this mortal state um, as, as we ever could have been before something happened. And that's what the atonement's really about. So how does that relate to the third principle is that uh, part of what, what we have the capability of doing in this life, in, in my interpretation, is receiving from light certain truths that we could not access or experience as just spirits. So we learn in the scriptures a lot about the, the importance of the spirit and body, that when they are separated from each other, there's a couple of times where it indicates that being a state of bondage, that they viewed it as bondage, not having the bodies. I, I like to connect that to the savior that, you know, it was only a few short days. I mean, two days, three days, depending on how you like to measure it, that, that he was without his body once he had entered his the mortal state, right? Uh, the resurrection happened just uh, just a collection of hours after the crucifixion, and so the the unity, bringing that unity back between the spirit and body, was clearly of great importance, and obviously the onset of of the resurrection. And so, uh, w- what this connects to with light is, I give this analogy in nanotechnology. So you, I figure you like this from nanotechnology uh, <laughs> side, Richie. That there's a material called graphene. It's the thinnest known material in the universe. It's a single atomic layer of carbon atoms, and yet it is totally stable. So we can we can actually isolate it on a surface. But if I were to hold it up, it would be completely invisible. You would not see it at all. No interactions with visible light. Very limited interactions with other types of light. But if I place that one single sheet of atoms down onto a surface, I can see it. So it changes the interaction that light has with the substrate that it is placed on. Hmm. Think about that with respect to spiritual matter, spirit bodies placed in physical bodies, a substrate, this substrate of physical body that our spirit is within. I would, uh, I would imagine based on what we know about physical principles, that that translates to a a way of receiving light that cannot be received when the spirit is on its own. And that gives us access to truth and to how we can embrace and live truth and, and correspondingly radiate the light from that truth as we receive it using that substrate. So when, when folks think about 
you know, the body, you know, uh, many people suffer from tremendous uh, challenges in this life due to their physical bodies, health challenges. Um, uh, there could be mental struggles. There can be all kinds of, of challenges that are faced and can make it feel like the body is a prison, like it is, it is truly holding them back from achieving. And, uh, and, and, and I'm not cheapening that in the least. I just, I like pointing out that, that there is something grand that is also happening with the body and spirit. And that, that, that is not necessarily limited in the way that our other physical limitations may manifest that, that they, anyone has access to heavenly truth and help and comfort and, and all of those other accessible spiritual principles uh, by virtue of receiving it through the light of Christ. Before we kind of wrap out this this idea of light, one thing that that you know, growing up within the church and, and have heard um, multiple times for, in multiple scenarios, whether it be from the pulpit or within the classroom, you know, we talk about how hell is just a, a place that is uh, an absence of light. There is no light in hell. I wonder what what if any uh, like application or like instance does that have within life here on this earth? Are there times that uh, that or experiences where we can say, yeah, this would be a, a demonstration of what hell would be like, or this is? Am I making sense with what I'm trying to ask here? Yeah, I, I think I think you are. I, I mean, I'll try to address, it and then you could definitely tell me if I'm like, oh no, you completely missed it. But the <laughs> I, I, I like that the connection. I mean, I, I think light gives us one of the most vivid ways of thinking about the heaven hell uh, contrast. I mean, contrast in general being being this this difference in light, right? That um, I, I, the way that I like to think of of the differences when we we consider states of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how clear the scriptures are, New Testament and Doctrine and Covenants, about the difference in our resurrected bodies, that there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies and celestial bodies, and that there is a difference in light between these, that, that, that there's a capacity difference there, either, either from just the radiation or generation of light, or also from the overall ability to receive uh, light and truth from light. And, um, and if you, if you kind of carry that through in terms of the, the different kingdoms in the afterlife and, uh, and in hell or, or, you know, and that could be used to apply to different states, uh, but, sure. but you think of it as an outer darkness space, which we use darkness as a way of describing that, that most uh, complete removal from, from, you know, overall salvation. Uh, that that it really comes down to while there are resurrected beings in all of those places uh, that that there are is a difference in the light they generate based on the state of their resurrected bodies and that that and that comes down to in my opinion that comes down to our preparation for enduring different levels of light I, I mean I think of you think about if you're sitting in a dark room in a movie theater or something and it, Suddenly you, you walk immediately out into the sunshine. I mean, oh, oh, it hurts. You know, I mean, you, you weren't used to that. And because you become accustomed to, to the darkness and, uh, you know, we hear this words in the scripture, like they love darkness more than light. And, you know, you, you become used to these environments. And if you're not used to enduring a significant amount of light, it will be painful. And so when we think about judgment and like, you know, Oh gosh, I hope the gavel doesn't fall in the wrong direction for me. And oh, I hope I'm doing, I, I just, I, I don't think it's left to that much chance, like to that much uncertainty. I think it's, 
Uh, have you lived in a way that makes you comfortable in the greatest amount of light? Because if you are comfortable in it, then you will be comfortable enduring it in the eternities. And if you're not, then you're definitely not going to spend want to spend the eternities in it, right? I mean, it's just, it's not going to be an environment that you have prepared yourself to endure. And so I, I, I think that, again, I may be going a different direction than you had in mind, but I think that that's the principle that comes to my mind when I think of how light may play a role in determining hell versus uh, other states of being in the eternities. I think that you did very well with my not very uh, well-worded question to be able to extrapolate the thing that I was uh, trying to get at. Uh, Let's take a break, Aaron. And when we come back in the third block, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you, plus I got a couple other ones. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you have not considered being a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, I would ask you the question, what's wrong with you? I mean, you haven't even considered it for crying out loud. It's okay, maybe, that you haven't done it, but you haven't even considered being a Patreon saint. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. It's where like-minded people, people who like the cultural hall, are hanging out and sharing funny memes and gifs or gifs, depending on the way that you like to pronounce them, uh, tangential conversations about each of the episodes that we share here, and you get to see the video uh, from the various episodes. Like, you wouldn't know that Aaron is where a Duke shirt if you are not a Patreon saint and you want to know that he's wearing a Duke shirt or is he? Find out by becoming a Patreon saint. It also gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group and we would love to have you there. So patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Aaron, I have a question for you as a professor. I'm sure that in your classes, and maybe not at Duke, so walk this out a little bit with me, but you were, I don't want to say the world's worst student, but one of the world's worst student pre-mission When you have those students that are in your classes that, you know, they're just not getting it. Do you have a a certain place and space where you're just like, come here, let's just have a chat. Can we walk that out? Or are most people that would get to you and your level, they've figured it out and are are stalwart in their studies? I know it's a very fair question and a very fair label that I will embrace about my uh, my scholastic uh, performance, say academic performance uh, pre-mission. Um, so I definitely have a tremendous amount of space uh, that I try to offer for for folks that seem to be going through something uh, akin to what I initially experienced now being that I am at a university that is uh, relatively difficult to get into and requires a significant, you know, display of academic uh, capabilities prior to admission. I think you get a little less of that, but it is not completely void. And and honestly, you tend to find it most 
through what we call um, low income or first generation students. So I, I, we don't just call that a Duke, but just generally students that are going to college for the first time uh, in their family, they don't have the same infrastructure of support and awareness about what it takes to succeed there. Mm-hmm. And, and those coming in uh, that are financially constrained, that uh, are having to balance perhaps work in addition to studies, that brings a different type of element to the to the landscape of how to succeed. And so um, I'm, I'm very active in that community. I come from both of those uh, categorizations. And, and what I often share with those students is that for me, and, and I'm not going to pretend it's the same for everyone or that, you know, oh, see, all you have to do is this and then everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, it really came down to the fact that in my first year of college, I used my identification in coming from a low income first generation background as the excuse for when things did not go well. That uh, they didn't go well, and oh well, of course they didn't. I mean, I hey, I don't have the same infrastructure these other students do, and hey, I'm working at the same time, and hey, you know, all of it was was an explanation for when something didn't go the way that I thought it should, and uh, that one of the major transformations from mindset was I had the same exact backdrop of of low income and first generation in college. But I used it more to to drive me more as a way of enabling, you know, that because of these things, I have an increased capacity for for in many cases for work. I mean, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but but, you know, just the the experiences that that this offered me in growing up are ones that tend to give me a a bit more drive and and, uh, work ethic uh, than a lot of my peers. And being willing to embrace that as as a capability rather than a hindrance was was a huge part of that kind of flipping the switch for me. But uh, but yeah, so so short answer to your question, I try to. I I, I won't pretend to be perfect at it, but I do often uh, each semester uh, see a few of these students that just aren't really able to connect well with the material, seem to be struggling generally, and and I try to make an effort to make space for them and and talk them through and see if there's a way I can help. Is there something per, uh, professionally pretty um, like, um, I don't know, pride inducing is not the word I want to say, but where you're like, yeah, Duke, baby, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a Duke. You know what I'm saying? Cause, and, and no sort of slight on a community college or something like that. But, mm-hmm. but there are, there are a few schools that it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, we always go Harvard, these Ivy league schools and, and I think they get a lot of it, but, but Duke's a pretty big deal too. Or are you just like, I'm just grateful to have a job. I spend more time in the latter of those two uh, states, but but definitely, I mean, it's kind of a comment I made a little earlier, and it's I really am not intending it with any level of of, of haughtiness or pride, like, oh, look at me, I'm at Duke. Uh, it, it is a surprise to me as it is to anyone else. I mean, I don't look at it and say, oh, yeah, you know, look at you, I've arrived, you know, I, I got to this place. I, I, I'm I'm pretty aware of of where I came from, and, and I don't see it as I conquered, you know, I went through this. I see it as a, a series of, of very fortuitous and, and major blessings that, that came into my path. And, and I like to, to make clear what my history is because it's, it's, I don't want to suggest like this, oh, the American dream, you know, if, if someone came from that and could go there, I think of it more as I'm the same person I was then, now, and, and opportunities to be a part of of renowned or elite institutions, whether they're in business or, uh, you know, in, in, in the general corporate world, or whether they're in academia or in any other setting, it's as accessible to, to anyone. It's not, this isn't like the NBA dream, like only some small, tiny fraction of anyone is going to achieve that. 
it, it is something that is truly accessible uh, to, to folks that, that, you know, really want to put the work in to, to get to a certain place. So anyway, I, I feel so humbled and, and honored to be part of, of a place that is of renowned uh, academic learning. And um, I continue to grow because of that association. I, I, I have not the one that makes it that way. I'm one that that grows from being part of it, and um, and I think that's that's just a tremendous blessing. I appreciate that perspective. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you now. The first question is: Is do you have a calling, and if so, what is it? Yes, I do have a calling. I'm the first counselor in the bishopric in our ward. There you go. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh my goodness. Um, that has changed a lot over time. And uh, right now, it definitely be nursery. And and, and 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 listen, I was the de facto nursery leader for years in graduate school because uh, the folks that were serving in nursery at the time, just I was there every day because my daughter, my oldest, was like one of those that would scream bloody murder if we left <laughs> her. And, and the nursery leaders at the time weren't the type that were like, you just go, we've got this. Like this, you know, serious armor of, of you know, just resilience and capability. They were like, oh my gosh, don't leave us with this. And so I, I would stay. And eventually I stayed so much, I was like helping run the thing and they kind of stopped showing up. So I, I just like, they never decided to call me to, the, but I was there every single week and I pretty much just started bringing the snacks and preparing a lesson. And, um, and I didn't love it then. I, I just to be completely honest. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in nursery. I don't ever get a break from this. That's right. That's right. Um, any parent really would often express that if they are spending a significant amount of time with their toddlers uh, in the home front. Uh, but but now, you know, my kids are teenagers and uh, I just I, I went in sub nursery a couple of weeks ago and I thought, oh, yeah, I could do this. <laughs> you know, put, put me here. This is fantastic. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's certainly the case. I, I will I will uh, take a little. Um, uh, of the time, just to say something very brief, though, about this, Richie, it's, it's, it's just near and dear to my heart, is that I think it is important that we continue to work on our awareness in the church of the fact that we all lead and serve and make an impact and are critical no matter where we are. And there's some pomp and circumstance that we have yet to weed out of our culture mm-hmm. and that that I think we need to be increasingly vigilant about. And so I learned this on my mission. On my mission, they came in and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the youngest AP in mission history. Like, that's what we're here for, right? Like, mm-hmm. we to succeed mm-hmm. in these ways. And my mission president gave me the greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts of my entire church service life, which was I, I, my second companion was, was a greenie. So I trained my second companion already like, oh, on the rise. I, I was a district leader. I was out six months and, and transfer was coming. And I thought, I am going to be the youngest zone leader in the history of the mission. I mean, they might as well take my picture now. So I can hang it. In the mission <laughs> right. And, and that's where my mindset was. And uh, I got the phone call for transfers. I was being sent to the mission office as a referral secretary. Now you have to understand in that, in my mission, that was like the lowest of the low. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it, no one wanted to be that in that role. That was like where, where president put the problem missionaries and, and it was, there was no glory to it. I was junior companion. I was not even district leader. It was like, you know, in the missionary world, ultimate demotion. And, and I thought I was like, I was shocked. And, and I sat down that morning 
feeling like I just couldn't even get out the door. So self-loathing, you know, and I read a scripture that changed my life. It was second Nephi chapter three, verse eight, and it's completely out of context and yet wonderfully applicable where it's, it's Lehi speaking to his son, Joseph. And he says that he shall do none other work, save the work, which I shall command him. And he Mm. will be great in my eyes. And at that, that would just like awareness, this flood of shame and uh, that, that has lived with me since, honestly. And, and I have to be reminded of it on occasion, but this awareness that like, who am I trying to be great to? Am I trying to be great to people that, you know, will kind of give me those uh, congratulations in the hallways, in the cultural hall? Mm-hmm. Or, or is it is it a greatness to God? Because God couldn't care less whether we are a religious society president or bishop or stake president or, frankly, a general authority. I, I genuinely don't think God could care less. I mean, h- how on earth could he? He loves us all. I mean, if he only saves state presidents, heaven's going to be a really boring and very (laughs) unpopulated place, right? So, I mean, I think we get way too caught up in some of these things. And and I say that having having served as a bishop at a relatively young age, and so being given some awareness to that principle, and I was so grateful for that awareness because... Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily want to be a bishop. I don't necessarily want to be a stake president and do these things. And and yet I still do have to remind myself, like, by the way, it's not just about wanting. You don't need to like like you don't need to do those things. So anyway, I, I, I love this question in your podcast and I love that I would choose the nursery. Like I, I, that I've come a long way in, in my life, in my in my arc of a story within the church to get to that place. And I and I love that. The last question, as you know, uh, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Yeah, love this question. Uh, My favorite part of my faith is, uh, I'm going to tie it back to the comment that we had made earlier about truth, that that our faith is an all-inclusive collection of truth. That, that, you know, those that mistakenly suspect that we have some kind of monopoly on truth within the confines of the church or the restored gospel are limiting exactly what is a tenant of our belief. And that is that God will continue to reveal great and important things related to the kingdom of God. He can't possibly continue to reveal them if we have them all. And and it never says that he will continue to reveal them exclusively and only to those that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I love that at at its heart, now whether some folks embrace this or live it uh, (laughs) is a completely different discussion, right? But at its heart, our faith is a faith of embracing and learning. It's President Hinckley. President Hinckley never said, oh, oh, you are from this particular r- belief system. Um, you're going to leave that. You're going to leave a lot of that behind. OK, but come and see if we make you better. Mm-hmm. He said, bring everything you have and see if we can add to it. it we, we are not made to be exclusionary. We are ma- made to be uh, welcoming and open. And that, to me, is one of the most true principles of the restored gospel, is that it brings all truth together. And that's why, in a nerdy way, as a scientist, it lets me write a book called The Spiritual Physics of Light, because there is willingness to embrace that what we learn about in the scientific world connects. And so one quick last comment on this, I know I've talked a lot here, Richie, is 
I had a meeting a few months ago with a colleague of mine here at Duke that is a part of our divinity school and just an absolutely upstanding individual. So, so impressive in, in his faith as a, he's a Christian. And he was interested in my book. Like he was curious about it. And, and obviously, I mean, the book, obviously for anyone who's read it, it, it's highly steeped in truths that come from restored scripture in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so there's going to be a lot of foreign concepts that may be there to someone who's not, but yet to think that they wouldn't have value in the book would make me feel very, very hurt because I want it to be something that is of potential use to, to those from other faiths as well. And one thing that we got into a very friendly uh, discussion about, but did not see eye to eye on was this, to me, I took it as face value that like, oh yeah, you know, I make connections between the physical principles of light and light the way that it works spiritually, the way we learned about it in the New Testament, for instance, and that Jesus is the light of the world, and that we are the light of the world, and how are we both the light of the world, and what does that mean, and how do we put a city on a hill and, and shine the light, and and we were having a discussion, and he stopped me, he's like, no, 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 Aaron, uh, there's not necessarily a connection there, like how God works does not need to necessarily relate to physical principles, and, and, and I really, oh, wow. Okay. And, we, and then we dug into that because we discovered something that we just, we don't necessarily share uh, agreement on in this particular aspect of our faith. And, mm -hmm. and, and for me, I love that that is an aspect of our faith, that the truth that we learn in the physical principles of science or engineering or philosophy or other aspects of the world, that that truth is also God's truth and that he works by those principles in addition to others that we may not yet understand. Yeah. Aaron, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. I would encourage everyone to go to the uh, link in the show notes to purchase The Spiritual Physics of Light. It is a Deseret Book book, which means if you use the promo code RICHIE, when you check out, you can save 15% on it, and uh, you can read and know more about what we've been chatting the last hour about. Uh, Aaron... I want to uh, to let you know I appreciate the, the time that you have spent with us. Uh, and uh, and now I've forgotten how I'm going to wrap this thing out. Give me a second. I've done it 600 times, and now I, I cut myself middle of the of the way, and now I can't get back into it. Uh, in the meantime, Brother Brent, Debbie Wanless, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, Miracles I Told You So, and Rick McGee will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat On the back row, we really gotta go On the Culture Hall Show Ow!